0: Good morning. Welcome again. We will continue in 1 Samuel. Uh, We are at chapter 19. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to go through two chapters, but I'll read the end of 19 the beginning of 20. This is on page 242 if you're using one of the blue Bibles that were outside the doors. 1 Samuel chapter 19. I'll start at verse 18. I'll read a good way into chapter 20. Um, Basically, what's been happening as we jump into the middle of this chapter is that David, who is uh, the recently anointed but not yet coronated king of Israel, uh, he has been escaping from Saul, who's the current king. Uh, And so, so far in chapter 19, there's been a bunch of ways that Saul has tried to kill him, and David keeps escaping. So now we have verse 18, uh, the last one of these escapes in chapter 19. 1 Samuel 19, 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel And lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it said, is Saul also among the prophets? Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What's my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, wouldn't I tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let's go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts as we hear your word and meditate upon it. Uh, Make them acceptable to you, Lord, so that we might see here the glory and the goodness of our King Jesus. Uh, Teach us, Lord to submit to him, to be allegiant to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, famously opens with this line. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. This morning we are finding ourselves right in the middle of one very unhappy family a family filled with division and deception, with guilt trips and power struggles, with mental illness and spiritual darkness. One of the things I love about the Bible is the way that it honestly depicts and wrestles with all these kinds of relational griefs, all these kinds of relational breakdowns. Many of us here this morning have experienced these kinds of things in our own families. Some of us are experiencing them right now. Here, the thing that makes Saul's family so unhappy is their division over how to respond to God's chosen king, over how to respond to David. Some of us know this kind of thing directly. Some of us have been openly ridiculed or rejected by our own family members for our allegiance to God's ultimate king, Jesus. Now, sometimes that happens outrightly. Sometimes it happens directly. uh, But it often comes in more subtle forms. Uh, Maybe somebody in our family says, well, sure, Uh, maybe a little bit of religion is good for you if that's your kind of thing. Uh, Maybe it's good for raising nice kids, But don't get too carried away. Uh, Don't say anything that is going to make us feel uncomfortable. Don't say anything that we don't want to hear. Uh, And don't actually let your religion cause you to do things like move away, take a lower-paying job, go to seminary, get married before you can buy a house or finish college. Jesus really meant it when he said that he did not come to bring peace, but rather a sword. He said that a man's own enemies will be those in his own household. And so as we dive into the unhappiness of Saul's family, we need to be asking ourselves today, how am I responding to what God is doing through his chosen king? Am I going to be more like Saul, hardened against what God is doing, greedily, clinging on to my own interests and desires? Or am I going to be more like Saul's kids, especially Jonathan? Delighted with what God is doing, delighted in his king, even at enormous personal cost, at enormous relational danger. In 1 Samuel 16, a few chapters ago, we saw how God had chosen and then anointed David to replace Saul as king over Israel, And then in chapter 17, we saw this spectacular victory, this unexpected victory over the oppressive giant Goliath. And then last week in chapter 18, we saw Saul starting to turn against David, even as everybody else is coming to love David. Everyone admires David for all of his success, all of his skill. We saw in chapter 18 that the main reason that Saul hates David so much is because of his jealousy, because of his insecurity. Saul, in chapter 18, had tried to get rid of David by indirectly getting him killed through a series of phony gestures that revolved around uh, getting David to prove himself worthy to marry one of Saul's daughters. Uh, and then even in chapter 18, in a couple fits of madness, Saul tries to impale David with a spear. And none of it worked for him. David continued to see great victory after great victory, and Saul's daughter does end up marrying him, and she even actually falls in love with him. So now in chapter 19, Saul gets a lot more direct with trying to kill David. The main theme of chapter 19 is that God is protecting his anointed. Over and over in this chapter, God's protecting his anointed from some kind of threat or danger. If you flip back to the beginning of chapter 19, verses 1 to 7 you see David being rescued through words. He's rescued through words. Saul goes to his son, Jonathan, and to his servants, and he tells them directly, go kill David. But you're reminded of this intimate friendship between Jonathan and David that we heard about at the beginning of chapter 18. We hear here that Jonathan delighted much in David. And so Jonathan warns David about his father's plot, and then he goes to his dad to try to talk him off the ledge. Verse 4, he says to his dad, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And so you can see this repeated emphasis. It shows up again in these chapters about David's innocence. This reminder of how crazy it would be to oppose somebody who's done nothing but good for you. Saul's convinced at this point by Jonathan's speech, and he swears an oath that he will not kill David after all. And so it looks like the problem is solved. God has protected his anointed through the words of Jonathan. You hear in verse 8 that David goes out to battle again. He's successful again, and then he's back in Saul's court. He's playing music for him to assuage whatever kind of spiritual or psychological torment that Saul is experiencing under this harmful spirit from God. But Saul, now for the third time, takes up a spear and he tries to pin David to the wall. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Talk about a bad day at the office. Saul is holding this weapon of aggression in his hand. David is holding an instrument of healing in his and so, once again, you're being reminded of the utter injustice of what's happening to David. Right in the middle of David helping him, of David healing him, Saul tries to kill him. But he's protected uh, not only through Jonathan's words, now also protected through Saul's poor aim. And then in verse 11, we hear that he's protected through a ruse. Through a ruse. His daughter, Saul's daughter, David's new wife, just like Jonathan, goes to David and warns him and says, My dad is trying to kill you. You need to be careful. So she helps him escape through their bedroom window. And before Saul's assassins come, she sets up this dummy in his bed and puts some goat hair on it to kind of look like him. It doesn't last very long. They f- quickly figure out what's going on. And then she expands the ruse. She says, well, uh, he told me he would kill me if I didn't let him go. So finally, that's the third time that David gets rescued. Now finally, the fourth time in this chapter that David gets rescued, that David, that God protects him, he protects him by his spirit. This is where we started reading earlier. God protects his anointed by his spirit. Look at verse 18. David runs a couple miles up the road to Samuel. Remember him? He's been this important character. He's kind of been out of the story for a few chapters now. But he goes to Samuel and he tells him how murderous Saul has become. Samuel apparently is not terribly surprised by this. Uh, Saul repeatedly sends his goons to capture David. But each time they get close to where David and Samuel are, God's spirit rushes upon them. And they start prophesying. They start speaking about God. They start speaking for God, even apart from their own conscious desires. Part of the point here is that God's word is continuing to rule over Saul, even as he becomes more and more frantic in trying to force his own desires and plans. Saul himself, after three attempts with three different sets of messengers, Saul himself now goes. But before he gets very far, he himself is overcome by God's spirit of prophecy. We hear this strange detail that he strips off his clothes and that he's totally naked on the ground speaking God's words right there in front of Samuel for an entire day and night. It's a bizarre little episode, but the point is that mighty Saul is totally powerless to oppose God's word and God's king. Saul, like all of us here today, contrary to what a lot of us like to pretend, Saul is entirely at God's mercy. At any moment, if God wants to, he can overpower our mental integrity and our physical prowess, no matter how much CrossFit you've done, no matter how much school you've been to. In many ways, this is a really sad scene. It's tragic in a lot of ways. Saul is being humiliated. He's raving naked there in the dirt. We're supposed to come away from this thinking how foolish it is, how shameful it is to oppose God's plans. How foolish it is to think that we can go against God. Part of what's going on here too is that you are seeing Saul literally being stripped of his kingly office. Remember that little story at the beginning of chapter 18 last week about how Jonathan gladly and willingly took off his royal clothes, his royal emblems, and gave them to David as a sign that he was submitting to David, that David was going to be the new king? Here, Saul also is taking off his royal emblems and his royal clothes, but he's doing it unwillingly. He's doing it in a state of defiance against David. In the end, everybody will bend the knee to God's anointed. The only question is whether you will do it from a place of joyful deference leading to blessing, like Jonathan, or whether you will do it from a place of spiteful defiance leading to humiliation and shame, like Saul. Everybody bows the knee at some point. So you have the protection of God's anointed. He's totally committed to his plan to expand his kingdom through his anointed ruler, who will ultimately, we know, turn out to be the Lord Jesus, no matter what dangers would face him. God rescued Jesus from every danger, not least the grave. But now in the first half of chapter 20, we move on from the protection of the anointed to the friendship of the anointed. The friendship of the anointed. David goes back to Saul's court to meet with his best friend Jonathan. Listen to his anguish here in verse 1 at the injustice he's facing. He says, What? have i done where's my guilt what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life it's all so cruel and senseless david's done nothing but good for him saul is returning it with evil but jonathan maybe banking on his successful argument that he had with his dad back at the beginning of chapter 19 jonathan seems pretty perplexed by this maybe even naive He says, what are you talking about, David? My dad's not trying to kill you. You're totally overblowing this. Don't you think my dad would tell me if he hated you? You don't know what you're talking about, David. Have any of you ever known somebody who couldn't see the evil and the injustice right in front of them? Have any of you ever known somebody who made lots of excuses for somebody that they loved and said they just couldn't be brought to see what was going on right in front of them? That's Jonathan right here. David tells Jonathan that the reason he's so blissfully unaware of what Saul is up to is because Saul is hiding it from him. He says, look, he knows that you'd be really upset to hear about it. You don't know quite as much as you think you do. David says, seriously, Jonathan, I have only been one step away from death. But instead of digging in his heels further, Jonathan says, okay, I love you so much I will take your word for it. I will rethink this. I will look at this from another perspective. And so David comes up with this plan so that Jonathan can find out for himself what's really going on, so that Jonathan can see how terrible his father has become. David's going to skip out on the upcoming festival at the beginning of the month. And as one of Saul's greatest soldiers, one of his greatest servants, Saul is certainly going to notice if David's not there at his party. And so he's going to wonder, where where is David? David says, when he asks you where I am, tell him I went to my hometown for one of our family's festivals that we have every year. Uh, If he takes it in stride, okay, you're right, I'm wrong. He's fine, I'm not in danger. But if he flips out, you will know that he's out to kill me. And so Jonathan says, okay. In verse 8, David now pleads with Jonathan. He pleads with him to deal kindly with, with your servant. Uh, this is easy to miss in English, but the, in this phrase, when he says, deal kindly with me, he's using a word that we often translate in the Old Testament as loving kindness or steadfast love. It's usually a reference to God's steadfast love, um, but it's the language of covenant. It's the language of making alliances with people, agreements, friendships with them. Um, and it's particularly the language of somebody who's in an inferior status. Seeking the protection of somebody who's above them. So steadfast love, in an Old Testament covenantal way of thinking, steadfast love is what the superior shows to the weaker inferior, to protect them and take care of them. And so David says to Jonathan, please show me that kind of steadfast love. Deal kindly with me. David is acknowledging that he is dependent on Jonathan as a superior because Jonathan is the one who's in the royal family. Jonathan can go to Saul and say, here's what David is up to and here's where to find him. Here's how you can go kill him. And so he says to Jonathan, please be honest. Please speak clearly to me about what's really going on. Don't mislead me for your own sake. And so Jonathan says, okay, I'll tell you whatever I find out. I love you. At this point, they sneak out from the court into the field, probably so as not to be overheard by anybody in Saul's court. And so Jonathan says in verse 13 that if it does turn out that Saul's going to try to kill you, uh, I'll do whatever I can to protect you uh, because my loyalty to you, my friend David, overrides my loyalty to Saul, my father. It's an enormously risky thing for Jonathan to be doing. In a sense, he's conspiring to protect and preserve his father's number one enemy. He's taking the enemy Under his own protection. But at the same time, Jonathan knows that one day soon he's going to depend on David's protection. He knows that David is rising and that Saul is falling. So look at verse 14. Now Jonathan asks David for his steadfast love. He flips it around. He says, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love, there's that word, the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so you see what's going on here. Jonathan knows uh, where things are going. He can see the writing on the wall. He knows that David's going to take the throne. It's not going to be Saul's for long. And Jonathan admits it's never going to be his. Jonathan aligns himself with what God is doing. Even though it means that he's going to lose out on the throne and all of its benefits and all of its security. Jonathan loves David at incredible personal cost. And yet Jonathan asks David to remember him when he does ascend to the throne. He says, "Don't wipe me out along with all of your other enemies like my father Saul." He casts himself on the mercy of God's anointed. He makes him to swear by his own love for him. And then we're reminded in case we're forgetting David loved Jonathan as he loved his own soul. And so, of course, David is going to protect Jonathan. Of course, he's going to protect his family. They love each other deeply. The Lord is between them. They've made a covenant with each other. Jonathan's currently the superior, but one day he'll be the inferior. And so Jonathan comes up with this way that they're going to signal to each other about what's going on. He says, okay, go hide behind those rocks over there. I'll shoot arrows. If the arrows go past the rock, that means run away. If the arrows go in front of the rock, that means you're okay. You can come back. Verse 23, Jonathan reminds David that their covenant love is witnessed. It's supported by none other than God himself. He says, the Lord is between you and me forever. Jonathan loves God's king, even as it means not only great danger for himself, but also certainly a great cost. He's not going to be the king. He's not going to get to enjoy all the benefits, all those blessings that God promises to the king. In a lot of ways, it's like what John the Baptist says in John chapter 3. John the Baptist's own disciples come to him and they complain. They say, Hey, John, everyone's going over to Jesus now. Uh, You know, you were really popular for a while. What gives? And John says to his disciples, He says, I'm just the best man. He says, I'm not the groom. It's not about me. My job is to point to him. And that's where he says this line about how he must increase, I must decrease. Is that your attitude toward God's king this morning? Are you joyfully accepting whatever costs and dangers and broken relationships that come with being allegiant to him? Are you repenting of whatever ways that you like to pretend to be king or queen over your own little realm, over your own life, and your own family, and your own possessions? Are you actually recognizing instead that only Jesus can be king of everything that you have? Only Jesus can be king of everything you do. God's in Jesus shown us His mercy. Jesus shows us His steadfast love as His inferiors. He protects us. He brings us under His wing for anyone who comes to Him in this joyful dependence that we see with Jonathan. So we saw the protection of the anointed. We saw the friendship of the anointed. Now, starting in verse 24, you see the exile of the anointed, the exile of the anointed. Um, We've seen how God has protected him. We've seen this great friendship that he has with somebody who's willing to give up so much for him. But we're also seeing that none of that means that things are going to be easy for him. None of that means that things are going to be pleasant for him. He has been anointed in chapter 16. He's inheriting all of these incredible promises that God's made about his kingdom. He's been chosen to rule on God's behalf. We've been told that he's a man after God's own heart. He's seen all these spectacular victories all through the last few chapters. It seems like everything he touches prospers. And so maybe you would expect that things would be pretty easy for him. But so far, it's been pretty horrific. Over and over and over, we've heard David saying what many of us wonder from time to time. Why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Being anointed, being chosen, being appointed for God's kingdom work, even having this great track record of success in God's kingdom work, none of that means a life of smooth sailing. It does not mean that you will be materially comfortable. It does not mean that you will have good health. It does not mean that you will find it really easy to fight against your sin. It does not mean that your marriage will be really pleasant or that your kids will really follow the Lord their entire lives. All through both of these chapters, chapters 19 and 20, we keep hearing about David hiding and fleeing and escaping. I mean, think of um, what the Psalms would be like if David had not been exiled. David says, well, God, it's Passover again. My life is so wonderful and great. Uh, I guess I'm supposed to think about you. Thanks a lot. No, I mean, think about the Psalms. Think how they're full of of these expressions of anger and fear. Uh, These expressions of somebody who's in great danger, somebody who's deeply depressed, deeply sad over everything that's happening to them. What would they be like if David hadn't gone through all of this? What would our devotional and spiritual lives be like if God didn't bring us out into the wilderness like he brings David here? Just because God's called you into his work doesn't mean there's not a lonely exile in front of you. David's sent off into the wilderness. That's what the rest of 1 Samuel describes. Jonathan goes back into town. They have this party. Saul initially isn't too worried about it. But on the second day of the festival, he gets suspicious. When Jonathan slips in this story about David going to his hometown, he totally loses it. In verse 30, uh, you have a pretty sanitized translation of what's really a very foul outburst from Saul. I'm not going to give you a better translation because there's a congregational meeting after this, and I don't want the parents to be mad at me, but you can figure it out. Saul says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, don't I know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. He's saying the same kind of thing that so many uh, professing Christian parents say to their own young Christian children when they start getting a little bit overboard with their faith. Uh, Start uh, saying, hey, I think I want to go to the missions field. Uh, Hey, I think I want to actually take this kind of job. I think I want to marry this kind of person. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. You're ruining everything we've worked for. What are you doing here? Saul says, what are you thinking? He says, you're giving up everything that I've tried to give you, everything that's going to be yours. It's all going to be gone because of this crazy commitment to a nobody, a nobody who's somehow on track to take it all away from us. He says, you should be ashamed of yourself. What are you thinking? And so Jonathan tries, like before, to convince his dad that David is innocent. He says, well, it worked last time. I'll try again. Uh, But this time, Saul takes the spear, the same spear he tried to kill David with, and he takes it, and he tries to kill his own son. And then you get this uh, wonderful verse 33, this massive understatement. Uh, Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. He says, oh, okay. Now I get it. (laughs) Now he knows that Saul really is out to get David. uh, And we hear in verse 34 that he's enraged by it. He's horrified by it. He says that he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And so just like our own allegiance to Jesus... Jesus, Jonathan's allegiance to David means that he's now getting the same kinds of suffering, the same kinds of rejection that David faced. Remember what Jesus said a few hours before all his disciples were going to abandon him as he was arrested and crucified? Jesus says this in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jonathan goes to Saul and tries to do a bit of PR for David. He says, well, maybe he's just kind of got it this wrong a little bit. Sometimes Jesus doesn't need PR. Sometimes the world just hates Jesus. And that means sometimes they'll hate us. Jonathan now goes back out to the field. He shoots his arrows so that David knows what to do. He knows that Saul, yes, really is trying to kill you. And so David knows he has to run. Literally, he has to run for his life. Some Messiah. Verse 41, Jonathan sends this helper boy away. He approaches David. David bows before him in deference and respect. But then they embrace. They weep and they kiss in this abysmal grief over what it's going to mean for their friendship. You hear at the end of verse 42 that David wept the most. David wept the most. He's so lonely. He's so vulnerable. His future seems so uncertain. His exile, of course points us forward to Jesus' own isolation before he went to the cross, his own isolation at the cross. There, Jesus was totally alone. Not because he left his friends, because they left him. They abandoned him. And yet, the whole reason that he went into the ultimate exile of the cross was because he loved his friends, like he loved his own soul. Because he loved you. He died for you. He suffered the exile that you and I deserve so that we could come home to the Father, so that we could have a home. And so following Jesus today will mean great cost, great danger, perhaps even great isolation. Jesus said a servant is not above his master. But like David, Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our king. He's God's king. And so how are we going to respond to him today? Are we going to respond to what God's doing through him with defiance or with allegiance? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your steadfast love that you have shown us In Jesus, thank you for your covenant mercy, your commitment to protect the weak and the vulnerable. We are so battered by our sin and our suffering. Thank you for your mercy, for your heart of love towards us, even when we had been living against you, even as we continue to defy you and ignore you. Help us to see in Jesus uh, the heart that you have for us, Father, as your adopted children. You will never cast us out. We are no longer orphans. We're home. We don't have to be exiled. Give us deep joy knowing that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.